0: on The Verge. With Nashville, Tennessee being one of the hottest real estate markets anywhere in the world, wouldn't it make sense that you'd be looking for a smarter real estate experience? Compass pairs the industry's top real estate agents with innovative technology to deliver a seamless experience for every client from first-time buyers to seasoned sellers. I personally chose Lisa Gaston and the Gaston Collective to represent me when I sold my house recently here in Nashville. It was at the back end of the boom where the prices got to a point where everything was starting to retract but she held firm And she delivered a great sale for me. And I'm unbelievably grateful for all the work that she put in, especially through trying and difficult times. Some of that was out of her control. With her deep local knowledge and her commitment to exceptional client service, she's helping clients all across Nashville find their place, including me. If you're interested in finding your greatest experience in the real estate journey in Nashville, contact Lisa Gaston today and visiting compass.com. Com. The Gaston Collective is a team of real estate licensees affiliated with Compass RE, a licensed real estate broker, and abides by the equal housing opportunity laws. I can't tell how often I have conversations with clients about the difficulty in hiring talented business professionals. I tell them all the same thing. It's no different than working on your golf game. Trust your local pro. If you're in Nashville, Tennessee, there's no better resource than SHR Talent. They partner with top organizations in Music City to attract, successfully close, and onboard candidates across their core competencies of accounting and finance, tech, HR, and marketing. Contact SHR Talent today, shrtalent.com. That's s-h-r-talent.com. Remember, the future depends on your talent. On the Verge is also brought to you by Greenscene, Green Scene is a family owned company recognized as the Sizzle Award winner for outdoor living in Williamson County. We design and construct areas to blend with the natural landscape of your yard. That can include outdoor spaces, gazebos, fire pits, outdoor kitchens, and yes, putting greens. We understand the importance of your home. That's why we never settle for anything but the best. Green Scene also provides multiple teams with professional landscape maintenance, irrigation, and outdoor lighting. Welcome to On the Verge. Today's special guest is a professor at Middle Tennessee State University, but also a radical entrepreneur with a spirit to to learn, coach, and grow from many different angles. Joining me today, Colby Juvenville. Colby, how are you today, sir?
1: Virgil, I am wonderful. I'm glad to be here. As, as we discussed, I had a couple of Mountain Dews on the way over to get myself on the verge and get ready. <laughs> and uh, I've been described uh, in a lot of ways, but radical is, uh, is one that uh, I like. And uh, I've got the Mountain Dew in me, and I'm ready to be radical with you today. Oh,
0: I love it. But I'm, I'm like, super excited to have you on. I, I, I was thinking to myself, you're an entrepreneur, and an academic and those two things don't necessarily go hand in hand yeah how have you navigated your entrepreneurial spirit while being involved in a non-entrepreneurial environment such as being a professor at a university
1: you know it's a great question i think it sets the stage for our conversation today And, and and i want to say to you i think it's uh the, the one of the things that I love about my life is that we met, what, 20 years ago yep. through a, a mutual friend of ours. Yep. And, um, and it took us uh, 15 years later to have this conversation. And we met, <laughs> I think, as you recall, at an academic conference. That's right. <laughs> and, uh, and and so life happens, and 15 years goes by in a second, as we both know. Yep. Um, but it took me, that question takes me to this moment in time. I was walking across the campus at MTSU. I was, re- I was born to two educators who taught me that the way you take on the world is to become an educator and marry an educator and educate other people. And that works until you want things like lifestyle and freedom. <laughs> and lifestyle is not the car you drive. It's not the house you have. Lifestyle is getting paid for your value and not your time. <laughs> freedom is doing it with people that you want to do it with. I was walking across the campus. I'd gotten my PhD at 29 because these two guys said I wasn't smart enough to do it down at Southern Miss. And I know you're a Mississippi guy, so you appreciate the great state of Mississippi. I <laughs> sure do. <laughs> and I'm walking across that campus, and I'm probably 36 years old. I just got an associate professor tenured, thought I'd done everything I'm supposed to do in life. And here's what I said to myself I was great, I was smart, I could have done something with my life. How did I end up here? Now, I'm not taking away from the fact that getting a PhD, educating other people, going through a process to get an associate um, rank and tenure is not important or not a big deal or not a a measurement of success. Mm -hmm. But what I said to myself was, how did I end up here? And I ended up in this place where... You've heard the joke about college professors, right? What's that one? Here's what they say. Those who can do and those who can't teach. And those who can't teach, teach PE. That's the old Woody Allen (laughs) joke. That's
0: right.
1: And here's what I said to myself, and I think this answers your question and sets the stage for our conversation today. If you can do and teach, you get paid for your value and not your time. And I left after walking across that campus and asking myself, how did I end up here? I crystallized this moment in my life where I said, I want to do and teach and I want to get paid for my value and not my time. Yeah. And that's a total shift in mindset. And so when I think about the shift that I made, I wanted to take those ideas. If you, if you look at a college campus and you, and you look at the totality of the college campus, there is more intellectual property on a college campus than if you drove an airplane to New York a hundred times and back. There's more intellectual property in that. And so the question then becomes, especially in the world we live in today, how do you free that intellectual property into the world? How do you go out and create value for other people in a way that's meaningful for them? And so when you ask me about balancing this idea of being an entrepreneur with being an academic, I think it's around understanding that I'm not only there to figure out how to add value to the world, but I'm also there to help other people figure out how to be valuable. Do they want to get paid for their value versus their time? And therein lies a very fascinating
0: dilemma, which is the private sector versus the public sector Uh. doing a greater good for what appears to be the public in the public sector and doing greater good for yourself in the private sector. But that's a closed minded view of the truth. The real truth is in the private sector, you can do what it is that you feel compelled to f- fill your cup up with yeah. and do it in a way that you choose to. And the public sector, there's a level of volunteerism and citizen and community that you're providing, but it's confined in time and space. And you generally are told how it's going to go. We're going to give you some freedom, but it's going to need to stay within this right. these guidelines. And one of the things that I, I'm very interested to hear your take on it is that I believe that one of your strongest gifts is being able to listen to people's struggles and challenges and help them be reminded that it is those things that will propel them mm. to success yeah. versus the things that are keeping them from success. Talk to me about your vision and view of how struggle and difficulties yeah. should be viewed as stepping stones to where you're going, not things that are holding you down. It's
1: a great question. I think that, and I've learned that along the way, you know, I think I think struggle, if you look at the word passion, the, the root word of passion is passio, which means pathway, and it's pathway into the deepest, darkest part of the soil. And I think if I look back on my life and look at the struggle that I have, it starts with understanding that we all have a narrative that's either written for us or by us. We tell ourselves the same story day after day after day. It's a record player, and the record is playing in our head every day. We have 50,000 thoughts that go through our head every day. 40,000 are negative, 10,000 are positive. That comes from uh, how to get better at the things we care about, TED Talk. I mean, these TED Talks, what these guys come up with, how to get better at the things we care about. I think I want to know that, right? Yeah. Two things, how to get better, what do we care about? And so once I heard that, I started thinking about, well, what is the story that we tell ourselves? And there's a piece of knowledge around narrative-based coaching. And narrative-based coaching says that we all have a narrative that's either written for us or by us. And if, here's what I believe. Once I read that, if you don't understand your narrative, you can't change. But more importantly, if you don't stand some, understand somebody else's narrative, you can't help them change. So, so what is narrative? What is the struggle? Well, the struggle for all of us is that our experiences shape our story. Our story creates our identity. Our identity drives our behavior. And our behavior pushes what? Creates our outcome. So it starts with understanding the stories that you tell yourself that's based on the experiences that you have. Mm -hmm. I was born to those two teachers, and I was born with something called remnants of the pupillary membrane. Essentially, I was born with spider webs over my eyes. And they told my parents the best I could ever do is work as a functional literate, maybe at a McDonald's or in some low-level piece of work in life. And my my mom, Karen Williams, who's an educator, a renowned educator in Mobile, I call Mobile the womb of greatness down there in Alabama. <laughs> they live in Fairhope now, and as a golfer, I know you know where Fairhope is. Oh yeah. Um, but she refused to give up. And if I look back on my life and think about the people that impacted me the most, to really answer your question about struggle, is is they were coaches, and what coaches have the ability to do, I call it the coaching revolution. They have the ability to do this. Coaches make you have conversations you don't want to have to try to do things you didn't think you could do to become something you didn't think you could become. And if I look back on my life and the struggle that was created for me, and I think we create a lot of a struggle for ourselves, but it was I had great coaches along the way that helped me go through the struggle. And if you look at the role of the coach in the struggle, the the role of the coach is to provide a path and a plan. The role of the player is to practice and perform what a coach does. That brings that together is they, they affirm the the worth and potential in you in such a clear way that for the first time that you can see it for yourself. Mm -hmm. When I was at St. Paul's in mobile and St. Paul's is a school that, that, uh, is a values based school, mission driven, people focused, family first, Mm -hmm. incredible place to learn. And, um, the coaches had such an impact on me. Sandy Santoli was my ninth-grade coach, and he taught me this. He said, if you will dive for balls, if you will take charges, and you will play defense, you can always find a place to play on my team. So part of St. Paul's as a, co- as a player was um, coaching the, the uh, intramural program for the little kids. So my, my little brother Zach, my little brother Zach was the only kid on the team that could pract- that could play basketball. This is the basketball league. And so we had one uh, game a week. We had 30 minutes of practice. We play on Saturday mornings, and this was this was the highlight of my week. I would practice all week with Zach in the in the driveway to get myself ready. To go and win this game. I, and I dressed like a coach. I acted like a coach. I wanted to be a coach. Mm-hmm. And so the scores would be three to two, uh, four to two, six to two. That was the score of these 30 minute games, boy, girl, fifth grade. And the rule in playing in this intramural league was that you had to play defense. I mean, you had to play man to man defense. You did have to play defense, supposedly, but it was man to man defense. And so what do you tell little kids when you play man-to-man defense in an intramural league in fifth grade? The the coaching point is you say you go where they go. So I'm laying in bed, and I got that Larry. Remember that Larry Bird poster, three-peat? I got that above my bed, and I'm laying there thinking one day, I'm going to be a great Larry Bird. I'm going to be like Larry Bird. I ended up being more like Bill Lambert, but that's a different discussion. (laughs) And so uh, I I came up with this play called Number One. And number one is, Zach, I want you to come down, dribble, to the top of the key I want you to hold up number one and I want all the other players all you other players I want you to run up in the stands and give your parents a hug come down dribble hold up number one they go running up in the stands and I said Zach if this works the way that I think it's going to they'll follow them up in the stands you can jab step to the left and dribble and lay it up and we'll win the game two to nothing so we hold it up number one we go down we set up the play number one the kids go running up in the stands players follow him, parents are laughing, everybody's loving it, he jab steps to the left, he can only dribble with his right, shoots, lays it in, scores, crowd goes crazy, we win the game. Santoli comes down, the coach, conversations you don't want to have, do things you don't want to do to become something you didn't become, and he said, it's a great play, and you're going to be a great coach one day, but that's an illegal play, and I'm waving the basket. Here's what he did for me in that moment. While I was pissed that I lost the game, here's what he did. He affirmed and validated the worth of potential in me in such a clear way that for the first time, I could see it for myself. And I walked out of there, and I kept telling myself this story. I'm going to be a great coach one day, just not today. Every day, I worked to coach and teach on an ever-increasing stage because of that one moment... Huh in AS Mitchell Gymnasium at St. Paul's in Mobile, Alabama because Sandy Santoli was willing to know his role and make an investment in me.
0: Yeah, that's a big word right there, investment. It, hmm. it,
1: it, it's part of what, what what I see that we're missing in in the player coach relationship ironically verge how is it that um that tw- 20 years later Uh, I write a dissertation on the coach-athlete relationship. I look back on my life. Those coaches had a greater impact on me because they did those three things. And now I spend my entire life not only coaching on a college campus, and that's what I do at MTSU. I coach those kids. Uh, But I also coach adults out in this thing called the real world that you and I have to figure out a way to survive in just like everybody else. No doubt. It's such a fascinating
0: piece because there are so many things that have changed that I can't, I mean, I think it's money is the actual answer. Mm. But at the end of the day, as a coach, mm. on an individual person-to-person level, that hasn't changed. True. My, my one-on-one golf lessons yeah. and how people show up individually hasn't changed ever. But one of the things I learned from Ricky Bowers at Ensworth, which was really an interesting five-year stint for me, yep. was he said, Virgil, I know you've taught all these kids one-on-one, but you've never taught them all together. You get You get kids in packs, and you're not going to believe what happens. And the entitlement and what they feel like they deserve versus what they have to earn. Yeah. Is so separated now. Yeah. And I'm dealing with smart kids. I can't imagine how difficult it is in certain areas where it's maybe the only way out. They become so closed minded and it's their way or the highway. Mm -hmm. And you watch these AAU basketball and football parents. Holy cow, is it? It's a disgusting thing we've turned. Well, High school and college sports into, it's, it's we've,
1: disgusting. We've Americanized it, yeah. just like everything else. We've professionalized it. We've taken away the, the one thing that, that is beautiful, and we've done it to every sport that we've ever um, brought into existence and developed, and, and AAU, uh, my son played AAU. Um, I still struggle today with the fact that there is no offense and there is no blocking out. And there's very little defense. I, I made Jack as a, <laughs> I made Jack as a kid watch videos of uh, Larry Bird and Bill Laimbeer. It reminds me, Jack, my son, plays Division One basketball. I've been planting those seeds in that boy since the day he was born. Mm-hmm. When he was born, I grabbed his finger and I said, "I've been waiting on you my entire life, and I'm so glad you're here." And I'm not saying that my relationship is perfect with my son, mm-hmm. but but my role with him is path and a plan. Continue path and a plan. And so much like Wayne Williams, who was my stepdad, but really my dad, took my life, went over, and I was one. I call it the Wayne Williams School for Better Living and Better People, mm-hmm. what, he, what he put me through. An amazing man. Never saw him have a bad day. Never saw him lose his temper. All the things that I'm shameful about today. I've had so many bad days, and I've certainly lost my temper. <laughs> but Jack, much like I did with Wayne... Asked me after every game, so how do you think I did? And I give him the same answer that Wayne gave me. How do you think you did? And so finally, he got to his senior year, and he says to me, how do you think I did? And then for this reason, I decided this day, I decided I was going to say something a little bit different. I was going to actually answer his question. I said, do you really want me to tell you? Do you really want me to tell you what, what I think you did? And he said, that's why I asked. I said, I struggle." I struggle that nobody plays defense. I struggle that nobody really wants to block out. And I struggle with the fact that no one wants to put their body on somebody else in the game of basketball. Because the one thing you will realize whenever you do it is that there is no greater feeling in the world than when you impose your will on somebody somebody else with your body through sports. Uh There's no greater feeling. That's exactly right. So he goes, all right, Dad, I'll do it your way. What do you want me to do? I said, I want you to contest a layup. If the guy is taking a free shot, I want you to put him in the cheap seats and tell him you're not going to do that today. So we get down to his third, third to last game of his senior year. Guy gets a breakaway. Jack's got the angle. I'm like, here it comes. This is your shot. You, you can do it. He does it. That guy goes for the layup. Jack puts him in the seats. Beautiful. Crowd goes crazy. I'm just sitting there smiling. Ref goes over, tees him up, and calls it uh, flagrant foul. Flagrant foul. I never have lost my cool at one of my son's games. And I go down there, and I walk down to that official, and I said, all you did today by making that call, was making America just a little more weak. Yep. And I turned around and walked out. Now, here's the interesting thing for me. So Jack comes out after the game. I don't remember if they won or lost. If I look back on my life, I've won just about as many games as I've lost. And that's just the way it is. Yeah. And he had his hoodie on. I can remember that. And he had his head down. And here's all he said to me. Now, this is, you know, he is his father's son. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, You see, Deb, I told you they don't play basketball like that anymore. Now, isn't that interesting to your point about what sports looks like today versus did just 10 years ago Mm -hmm. and even 20 years ago?
0: Yeah. I mean, that's the, it's unbelievable. Like, literally, when you watch, it's almost, the NBA is almost unwatchable. I don't watch it. And college basketball has been robbed. Yes. Of its greatness because of the NBA. Yeah. To be true. And high school basketball has been robbed of its gifts because of college basketball. Yeah. They're cannibalizing themselves. They don't even realize it. But, like, people are, you know, LeBron James passes Kareem for the all-time scoring lead, right? And then they're saying, well, LeBron couldn't have even come close to doing that if he played in Michael Jordan's era because of the way the defense was played. Yeah, I'm like, okay. I mean and that the argument of who's the best is somewhat irrelevant. Yeah, but it's an interesting conversation, nevertheless. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you know, like I was I did this podcast with Drew Maddox and Drew's like I mean think about in, when we were younger, you know, yeah. back in the '90s, the NBA All Star Game was a great basketball game. It was a great basketball game. Now this is a glorified shoot around. It's not even. I don't know what it it's is. It's an embarrassment, really. Yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, what has to happen? In the world today, to shake us back into a reality of what's really important. Because has it been just because, generally speaking, America hasn't faced true struggle since World War II? Yeah. And because there's no real struggle, humans invent struggle. Yep. And when we start to invent struggle, it becomes a facade. It becomes a, a, a glorified hoax in our head of what we're struggling with when people are really struggling yeah. outside of the, Well, in this country too, but no matter how bad people think it is here, everywhere else is worse. Absolutely. And to me, that's the most important thing is I know that you're really into personal branding and making people understand their value. Yeah. But in a world that is generally speaking based around fraudulent claims of success, how are you using your narrative to show people their true net worth compared to the fake net worth that is shown social media or just in the facade of the day to day posturing.
1: Yeah, the facade, as they like to say in Tennessee. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I think that, that question is, is one that when I'm driving here on the back roads from the big town of Murfreesboro to get out of the bubble and come and see you, that I ask myself. And, and I think it start, I struggle. I, I struggle mm-hmm. with social media. Because I see where it's moving people towards. And I think the goal of life is to become the person that you're supposed to become in order to live the life that you're supposed to live. And the only way that I think you can do that is through self-awareness. And self-awareness is a key piece to emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence is the number one predictor of performance in the workplace. It can be taught and learned. Those that have it perform at a higher level than those that don't. But it starts with self-awareness. So the question that we should be asking ourselves is, how do we make people become more self-aware? How do we get them to get more of themselves? We're taught that if you want more, you've got to have more education, more experience, more opportunity, more relationships. The reality is that if you want more, the very first thing you have to have more of is yourself. Mm-hmm. So what's, what's the best way to go about doing that? What's the best way to go about getting people to become more self-aware? And I think that first starts with setting expectations. Al Bandura in the 1960s goes into a school district in California And says to the school district, "Um, I've been monitoring this school, measuring this school, evaluating this school for the last three years. And at these three classrooms, there's something going on because your test scores are higher than any other school in the state of California. I want to measure it. I want to figure out what's going on. I've only been looking at it at a surface level. So he goes and he studies that school, and they do, in fact, perform at the highest level. Um, But if you read the rest of the story, he picked those schools and those classrooms in random and went in there and said that they were performing at a high level and set the expectation for them to do it. So how does self-awareness connect to expectation? If you don't have any expectations for children, they will do absolutely nothing. Man, what a great statement. So the first thing that we have to do is get clear about the expectations. What is it that we expect from them? And then the second step is what, the, what do they expect from themselves? I was purposeful and intentional about giving Jack the seeds and the hunger. It, it doesn't surprise me at all that he is a walk-on that has an NIL deal at Middle Tennessee State University. And he wakes up hungry every day. Now here's what's interesting. Jack goes to this school in Murfreesboro. I was clear with the school on the front end about um, my intentions for him to walk on somewhere, play basketball. Jack goes through the transfer process, plays at the school, graduates, 30 on his ACT, 3.6 GPA, Six months into summer, five months, four months into summer at MTSU gets a phone call from one of my graduates who's the director of compliance and says that he is academically ineligible with a 3.6 and a 30. It's because he didn't take, there's a rule called the 710 rule, I believe is the name of the rule, and he didn't take the proper courses and the proper sequence so here's a kid that's put the time and the effort that's there out making it happen and gets um, called in to say that he is academically ineligible. First thing he calls me, and he says, you know, Deb, I'm, I'm just going to quit. And I said, okay. Why? And he said, man, this kind of stuff has gone on my entire life. From when I transferred from here to here, it's just the same old story. And I said, but Jack, imagine the story that you can't tell. Imagine I walked on at MTSU. I got a spot. I earned it. I was called in, and because somebody else didn't do their job, I was told that I was ineligible." I figured out how to get back on the team. I became a valuable member, built relationships as part of the team, and I earned a scholarship my senior year. Who doesn't want to hear that story? Who doesn't want to be a part of that story? Yeah, 100%. Who who doesn't want to tell that story? So he struggled. Now, what did I just do for you? I just showed you an example of narrative. Experience becomes your story. Story becomes your identity. Identity becomes your behavior. Behavior becomes your outcome. He gets in the next year. He gets back on the team. He hmm. becomes eligible. The, the, the almighty NCAA decides that they're going to let the number 13 player on a 12-man roster stay on the team and be a part of the team. And he goes and he earns his little spot, and he gets into the game the next season for the first time. And here's the text I got. I've never had a feeling like stepping across those lines and playing in that game like any other time in my life. I can't ever give this up. This is what I'm supposed to do. You ask me, how do we combat this thing called social media? There it is. Build a relationship. Understand the narrative. Set the expectation. Let them commit to what they're willing to commit to. Let them taste it just one time. His life's fundamentally changed forever.
0: Yeah. 100%. Expectation is an interesting word to me. Right? Expectations of a process is essential. Expectations of an outcome is cancerous. Yeah. And there, that's, like, that's one of the first lessons of expectations is to go over the fact that it's not the destination of expectation. Yeah. It's the steps that you go to get there that make the story, the life, and the, the, the pathway that you start to be able to learn that you can repeat in every situation in life. Not, not only that you
1: can, but you do. That you do. That's exactly right. We all, hey, in ninth grade, Verge started at the bottom and worked his way up. In college, start at the bottom. Work your way up. In life, start at the bottom. Work your way up. In your 20s, you get in the game. In your 30s, you move up in the game. In your 40s, you try to stay in the game because those 30-year-olds are so damn good. Yeah. In our 50s, what the research says is, what do I really want? What Part of what I'm doing is helping that kid at 21 years old say this is what i really want. Now look man, it's not sexy and there are days that he cusses me out and i cuss him out. And that's just part of it. Yep. But it but but what's what's the ultimate goal in all of this? We have built an education system that says there's one answer to the book. It's on page 47 in the very back. We have built a system that numbs people when we should be building a system that says how does this person come alive? What Jack was really saying to me at 20 years old when he, for the first time he went over and stepped across those lines, I feel alive for the first time in my life. What does social media do? Numbs all of that yep. out. And it becomes an addiction. Yeah, fake accolade. Yeah. And here's dude. I, I mean, I, I'll be vulnerable here with you and tell you that I get those notifications about your memories on Facebook and I read what I wrote and it gives me anxiety because who I am at 50 is so different than who I am at 40 and who I am at 40 is so different than who I am at 30 yeah and nobody prepares men especially for what they're going to have to deal with yeah the struggle that we're going to have to go through The absolute pain. I sat at MTSU when I got offered my first contract for $32,000 in the parking lot at 21, and I cried. Because I said, I did everything that they told me to do. And if you're listening to this podcast and you're in your 20s, it's not about them telling you what to do. It's about you making a commitment to yourself to say, do I want to get paid for my value? Or do I want to get paid for my time? And if you do, you better wake up and come alive to this beautiful thing called life. And the brand that you have inside I of am. you. You reference personal brand. We can talk about that once oh, we once we put the struggle piece to bed.
0: Yeah, like to me, I'll, I'll never forget this. I'd recently had a... Uh, and you've built a personal brand. And you've had your fair you. share of struggles. Yes, I have. I went to Mississippi State. That's where I went to school. Yeah. And I, I speak there every other year. And I had spoke there every other year since I graduated. Just helping kids teach golf, because it's not really part of the curriculum. Yeah, It's more—it's not golf training. It's business training. And then the golf pieces are filled in by the PGA. And I just felt like the, that golf teaching was so glanced over, and it's the second best way to make a living in the game if you're not good enough to play Tiger Woods kind of <laughs> golf. What? <laughs> so I told, I told these kids. Well said. <laughs> and I told these, these kids, I'm like, I said, I need you to understand something. At, at, what you think is important at age 18 is be, literally becomes laughable to yourself at 23. Yeah. What you think is important at 23 is even more laughable at age 30. Yeah. What you think is important at age 30, when you're 40, like, what was I thinking? And I'm not 50. I'll be 50 coming up, but when I, the last time I spoke, I was talking as a four, in the 40s. Yeah. I can tell you, what I thought was important certainly between 30 and 40 and what i think is important at age 50 is radically different yeah much like you said that at 50 it's like a it's almost like you you take a
1: step back and like how did i get here well all the research says that yeah you take a step back and you say what is it that i really want
0: because i got i got about 40 percent of my life if i'm lucky yet to go and i thought that i was doing the right things in the 90s and early 2000s and the early 2010s and now i'm like whoa yeah if i'd have known then what i know now i'd be doing something really different yeah and like so that leads me to the personal branding which is like i was fortunate because i decided to not work at a work for a club i decided to be my own business and contract myself out through a business so I was in control of my time yeah if I didn't want to teach on a Saturday I wasn't going to teach on a Saturday I'm going to be in control of my schedule not anybody else but the branding piece is that I just set a standard for myself of what I was willing to allow myself to do and how I was going to be and even though I've won Teachers of the Year Award and I've been on the Golf Channel and I've done this. The only thing that I've ever paid attention to is how I show up every single day to every single person. And the greatest compliments I get are the people that saying that they were very intimidated to come see me. They didn't think that they were good enough to come see me. Why would a person who coached Brant Snedeker for eight years want to deal with a hacker like me? And then you made me feel like I was Brant Snedeker. You made me feel like I was the most important person in the world for this hour. And that is exactly how I viewed what I'm doing. Every single person is equal value to me. I know that some people have a bit more golf skill than others, but nobody is a better person than another when you approach them in their strengths and guide them into the direction that they're asking you to guide them. So I'm very clear with what it is that I want what do you want from Virgil? How can I be the greatest person for you in this next hour? They always say, well, I really want to do this. And then boom, I attack that mission with a level of energy that I deem
1: only satisfactory to me. I think I think very few people get to where, where you are. And I'll explain to you why yeah, I say that. Why I say that. Uh, I think that very few people understand that that we move from task-based to relationship-based at some point in our careers. It's called task-based leadership to relational-based leadership. Then once you understand that everything in your life gets done through relationships, with relationships, then you really start to ask yourself, well, how do I build better relationships? Jerry Maguire, greatest sports movie of all times. Here's, here's how old I am and how bad I feel. I ask kids today, have you ever heard of the movie Jerry Maguire? Maybe one says yes, and the only line they can remember is show me the money. The greatest line in the movie, there's two, is when Dickie Fox, the late, great Dickie Fox, says to Jerry, the key to this business is personal relationships. My favorite part of the movie is when he describes that he became his father's son again, And he writes his mission statement, the things we think and do not say, the future of our business. These are the things that have shaped my life in such meaningful and powerful ways. I'm such a weirdo that I went and typed into Google because I'm not that smart. Google is the most inexpensive, expansive textbook on planet Earth. And I typed in the things we think and do not say, mission statement, and it actually exists on the web. How about that? Wild stuff. We'll hold on to that and we'll come back to why... I think that what you just told me is really, really important for those people that choose to listen. We rarely get to a place, we rarely get to a place where we understand first that everything in life gets done through relationships. We all profess that building personal relationships are important. We say that they are yet we don't teach people how to build personal relationships we don't ask questions like when does the relationship become personal when does it become meaningful and then most importantly in the relationship we don't ask for what you just asked for which is what has to happen in this hour for you to feel good about spending time with me even at a higher level Here's, here's what I'm asking in 2023 Because I decided to make this the year that I want to make I said Why did you even take The meeting today with me? I mean what a powerful question Yeah. Why And, and 20 years ago When I started I, I didn't At Millsaps They didn't have Consulting 101 and Consulting 102 They just didn't offer it No one taught me you, you were supposed to laugh there <laughs>
0: <laughs> I was waiting for the punchline Like here it comes <laughs> I, took,
1: I took the age of Jefferson and Jackson The old south The new south Arab-Israeli conflict I majored in history Okay I did not take Consulting 101 Or consulting 1 or 2 And so I made every mistake in the book I thought If you make bigger proposals If you just keep the dialogue going And don't get to know I did all the things wrong That you could possibly do hmm. And it starts with asking questions. Yeah. If you ask people questions, they'll tell you exactly what they want from you because we've built a society that won't ask questions. Yep. I was guilty of it. I, I would tell them, Virgil, I would tell them what was wrong with them and their business before I asked what questions. <laughs> Oof. <laughs> wow. This is Colby at 30 years old. Interesting. This is Colby waking up scared, worried about his future. Mm-hmm. This is a Colby about how can I create a future that's bigger than my past? So I think you asking that question is a critical piece to building your personal brand. Because the second piece that you said is, what I figured out was, this is what I heard you say was it's about making them feel like they're the most important person in the room on my whiteboard i wrote this down i'm finishing up an online course on personal branding i wrote a book with the rule number 1 to life by the way is to get around people smarter than you right 100%. get around people better than you don roy if you're the smartest person in the room you're in the wrong something's room something's wrong <laughs> don, don roy is uh, is somebody i have tremendous respect for mississippi state grad yep Um, we wrote a book together on personal branding, me, how to sell who you are, what you do, and why you matter to the world. Uh, I've been talking about uh, doing an online course for for five years. And in the end of November, December, I pushed everything to side. I'm going to finish this. I'm going to get this done. I'm at the five-yard line. I got to get it done. But I'm close. I was at the other five-yard line before. Mm -hmm. We're going into score. But here's the conclusion. I wrote down a couple conclusions as I'm putting this uh, content together. Because the content's got to be meaningful, right? We live in a world today that says value. If you don't give value, they won't stay. Here's what I wrote down. Personal brand. Let's go one above that, brand. Brand is promise that's delivered an experience. Oh, yeah. Well, That's great. Personal brand is your promise that's delivered through the experiences that you create with other people. Let's take it down to one level below that. Personal brand is made up of brand identity and brand image. Brand image, I wrote this down. You're an example of it, is the feeling that other people have when they spend time with you. Yeah. Brand identity is made up of unique perspective, how you see what you do unique education, how you know what you do and unique experience, how you deliver what you do. So now for the first time in our life, we have a framework that helps us understand feeling that we're trying to create and then perspective education experience. And in the course, I drill down to questions related to perspective education An experience tied to feeling. Yeah.
0: I can't tell how often I have conversations with clients about the difficulty in hiring talented business professionals. I tell them all the same thing. It's no different than working on your golf game. Trust your local pro. If you're in Nashville, Tennessee, there's no better resource than SHR Talent. They partner with top organizations in Music City to attract, successfully close, and onboard candidates across their core competencies of accounting and finance, tech, HR, and marketing. Contact SHR Talent today, shrtalent.com. That's shrtalent.com. Remember, the future depends on your talent. Two things I'm, I, I wanted i wanted to say this, and then I'm going to... Actually, I'm going to do with this first. I'll go in reverse, okay? Elon Musk was on a podcast with Joe Rogan, and he said that Google and YouTube provide probably a better education than you can get in college. All you have to do is take the time to look it up. And he believes that the college institution is in big trouble in the foreseeable future. One, because the education system is archaic and is not making people more prepared for the future. And in the private sector, that's where the true education lies, because the person who has the knowledge is also an entrepreneur and they have figured out a way to put a product out there and make money on it and it's the real deal. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, the private sector, the YouTube videos, the Google information provides a level of coaching different than you get in an institution. And you don't have to be accepted to get the information. Uh, you just have to have the desire to learn. Some people grew up in an area where they, there's no way that they could pass a test to get into an institution. But if you're in Google and you type in, how do I change a flat tire? Boom. Expert answer. Yeah, You know, my, my kids, they don't understand something. Khan Academy makes it clearer than the people that are teaching it at school. And I'm thinking to myself, we are in a unique time where it's probably never been easier to dominate. And we're seeing less and less domination.
1: We we live in a world that is more connected than any other time in the history of the world, and yet we've got more, quote-unquote, mental health issues because people continually fall out of connection. Go 100%. Brene Brown says that we're the most overweight, in-debt, medicated, addicted cohort in the history of mankind because we fall out of connection. That connection is why we're here, that we're hardwired for connection, that shame is universal. That the de- the, the, the de- You know what the definition of shame I keep things so simple. The definition of shame, as Brene Brown taught me, Shame is the fear of disconnection. Wow. Blame, the next time that you're in a relationship with a woman, man, whatever it may be, and it's all your fault, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll leave you for that to, to mm-hmm. decipher what all that means. <laughs> she defines that as discharging pain. So when somebody starts to blame me, and when I start To blame other people. By the way, I don't do that anymore after I watch this TED Talk. Mm -hmm. It's just they're discharging pain. What a powerful way to understand that. What a powerful way to understand. Shame is one of the most complex emotions on the planet. Yet she took it and boiled it down to the fear of disconnection. Wow. Yeah, it's
0: one of the one of the greatest books I've ever read is Healing the Shame that Binds You. Yeah. It's a ma- I mean it's a humbling book. And Brené Brown. What a fascinating woman.
1: Dude, I I'm I I'm uh, I don't know her, but I'm in love with her. That Ted Talk. She is so brilliant. Dude, it's, it's, and
0: vulnerable. She has a level oh, of yeah. vulnerability in her personal delivery. Yeah. Man, I respect the heck out of her.
1: I, I want to go back. Yeah, I dude, I, she she's so she, that Ted Talk, the the, the power of vulnerability. Mhm. Is a TED Talk that if you watch it, I don't care if you watch it a thousand times. I have watched it a thousand times. There's always something that you learn in those TED Talks. I want to go back to something that you said because I want to push on you a little bit here. Mm -hmm. Higher education will never change by itself. It always takes an outside force to change higher education. Mm -hmm. One of my clients and good friend, John Floyd, Old South Properties, A true visionary. Less than 10% of the population has the ability to cast a vision. Less than 10% cast a vision. That's why you're so frustrated. That's why I'm so frustrated. You can't see this over here. It's all sitting right there. Why can't you see it? 10% cast a vision. Visioneering. Number one skill set for CEOs, for high-level leaders. Less than 10% have the ability to cast a vision. Number two. Skill set, persuasion. 95% of CEOs will tell you that the thing that they desire most, that they don't know how to develop, is persuasion. Stories are vehicles that help explain change. Why do I say all these things? Because the story that you just told is the story that's being told in America right now. And the story is that higher education has lost its value in the world. There is no one, and I mean no one, that can, that, that can be put in a room with 30, 20-year-olds like me and take one TED Talk that's 17 minutes and break it down for four hours and put it in su- together in such a meaningful way that they walk out, draw a line in the sand, and say, I am going to start taking steps in my life that are different than I did yesterday. Mm-hmm. There is opportunity in higher education. 100%. But we have to be responsive to the market needs. What are the market needs? Here's market number one. Those kids lay their head down their pillow at night. I ask them, what's the one thing you worry about before you lay your head down on your pillow at night? What's the one thing you worry about? <clears throat> and it's how do I create a bigger future? How do I create the future that I want? It ties back to the central question that I started with you today. That, that Those coaches at St. Paul's taught me, how do you become the person that you're supposed to become? To live the life that you're supposed to live, self-awareness. What what piece are we missing in higher education? It's meaningful relationships. There was a study done at Georgia Tech. Thirty thousand graduates. They wanted to figure out why some graduates had well-being after graduation and others don't. Social, physical, spiritual, mental, financial, professional well-being. Hmm. They isolated it to one factor. Did the student have one meaningful relationship with a coach, a teacher, an advisor, a mentor. The takeaway for higher education is simple. Build meaningful relationships. Yep. It goes back to what we talked about where you said to that person, What is it that you want from me today? What is it that you want from me today? And then you, after your body of work and your evolution to where you are today, knowing that part of it is creating a feeling where they walk out and say, I'm really important. He really cares about me. You can't change people if you don't understand the story that they're telling themselves Every freaking day. Yeah, What's the story Jack's telling himself? I went to MTCS. I'm ineligible because somebody else didn't do what they're supposed to do. I'm going to change the trajectory of my life because of that. No. No. Let me write a, help you write a new story. My name's Jack. I got a 30 on the ACT. My dad was this crazy college professor and coach and teacher. He got into people's lives in ways that nobody else could. He helped me see, and there's days that I didn't like him, but he helped me see past where I was looking. He helped me see that if I continued to work the way that I needed to work, that there was something so much bigger than myself on the other side of that. Mm -hmm. Getting them to see the story in a new way. Susan Harder in 1972 studied children playing youth soccer i believe and she noticed that before they could master two things they had to master one thing she called it harder's competence motivation theory the takeaway for educators is simple here's question number one what do you want them to master What do we want them to master while they're with us? Here's question number two. What order do you want to put that in? You walk into my classroom, very first thing I say, there are four things that we're going to master in this class over this semester. There's not six, there's not five, there's not three. There are four things that we're going to master. I talk about it every day. There's so much in that answer. Yeah. But but higher education is uniquely positioned if we will get people to understand that, number one, understanding your own narrative is going to help you change. Number two, helping students write a new narrative and understanding their narrative is the only way you're going to help them change.
0: Yeah, and I think that it's not casting a blame on the professor, the university, or the student, but all three – Currently, in my humble opinion, and I don't, I don't think this is a all. I just think that what I experienced in my own college life was 20% of the professors yes. were engaged yes. and wanted to be a force in your yes. life. And 80% of the people were there to collect a paycheck.
1: I'm not going to argue with that. So
0: those 80%, they don't have a connection point to become a better coach because, or a teacher because the students aren't engaging with them. So they're just going through the motions because the, the students who probably need to be coached more than to be the person who instigates the progress. But well, I would say that at the end of the day, we need to start training people that it's up to you to be as great as you want to be. Okay. And there's no question that... At 35, you have more experience than you do at 18. But at 18, you still know you wanted to be successful. No, ask better questions. No doubt. Be more involved. And I think that there is, to me, the big dilemma. And it, it all comes right back to the connection. We don't teach quality connections. We don't teach quality relationships. We just hope that people find them. And in a, in a book to me that changed my life, was called the Celestine Prophecy by James Redfield. Hmm. Celestine prophecy, for just quick, is basically nobody that you ever run into in your life is happenstance. Every single person that is put in front of you, whether you're sitting beside them in a car, airplane, bus, train, walk into a you know, standing in line at a restaurant, getting a coffee, whatever, every single person is there for a reason. And if you're not taking the opportunity to get to know them, get to know why they're standing there then you've missed an opportunity that God put in front of you I've never heard of that book it is like 1979 or 1981 he later wrote books uh, since nine it's nine theories or nine stories and then there's the 10th element and then there's the 11th 12th and 13th so he's written four books but the first one is Celestine Prophecy
1: that's interesting that you say that Here's, here's the way I've said it I always ask any person when they come into my life what is the real reason that they need my help? Why did God put this person in front of my life? yeah, and the only way you can uncover that is is through questions yeah and and i and I do think that you're right to say that it is it is the responsibility of the teacher and the student, but we have to teach that one hundred percent we have to teach that part of the responsibility. Let's, let's take it one step back. What's the definition of a relationship? What's the definition of a meaningful relationship? When does a relationship become meaningful? Here's, here's my answer. When two or more people, through interdependentness, enter together in a relationship towards a common goal, that's when it becomes meaningful. What's the takeaway? What if you knew that in marriage? When two or more people enter together through interdependentness, what is the definition of interdependentness? I'm going to rely on you for A, B, and C. You rely on me for X, Y, and Z. That's where we're missing it. 100%. Through interdependence, I used to believe. I was raised. I was taught. Self-reliance above anything else. Mm -hmm. Later in life, through our good friend Brene Brown, she said the goal of adulthood is not independence. The goal of adulthood is interdependence. Two or more people enter together through interdependence towards a common goal. What's the first question higher education has to ask themselves? Here's number one. What's the common goal? Here's the one thing that fundamentally I believe about higher education. I believe about education in general. I know it to be true. I know it in my soul. I've been around educators my whole life. The only reason that you have education, the only reason is to help a student become gainfully employed. Gainful employment, simply defined, is finding meaning, purpose, and contribution in the work that you do. When I ask students why they come to MTSU, for higher education. They can't tell me that because the word gainful employment, the term gainful employment has fallen out of society. Yeah, We don't even know what it is anymore because of social media. Yeah, Because there's somebody that's an influencer that's making $230,000 a month and there's no way that they're finding any kind of meaning, purpose, or contribution in that kind of work. They may for the short term but it's hollow. Yeah, dude. My son, he I mean, he wants to be an influencer. Have at it. Go get you some of that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: See where it gets you. So I, I think thats it's a responsibility of both. The very first question we should ask is, what ultimately is the common goal? I, I share that story with you about the 30,000, Georgia Tech, one thing, one factor. Did they have a meaningful relationship? My mom sent that to me. Huh. My mom Greatest educator on planet Earth. She knows the struggle I've had. I don't talk to her about my struggles like I used to because she's older. Mm-hmm. She can't handle it. But in my 30s, I did some really cool things. I, I, I don't, maybe we'll have some time I can share. Do you know who Brian Shulman is? Do you know Brian? No, I do not. Shulman was Pat Dye's favorite player. Auburn graduate. Started a company. Sold it for $23 million called um, LTS Education Systems. Lives here in Nashville. Played at FRA. Um, changed my life. Like nobody... He called me PhD perfect. He said, "Listen, PhD perfect, you got to stop thinking that way. Before you can build version two, you got to build version one." But that article came from my mother, who hmm. mailed it to me. It's a Wall Street Journal article, and what she wrote on the little yellow yellow note. My mom did yellow no, uh, Post-it stickies. notes. Yeah, yeah. Post-it my, notes. my dad did uh, three by five white cards. They la- label like uh, note cards, mm-hmm. right? You're going to do this, then you're going to do this, then you're going to do this. I mean, these people were genius, right? Yep. And then she did the, the, the stickies, right? And she said, here's what she wrote on it. I'll never forget. I've got it saved. You've always wanted and thrive in meaningful relationships. Go create a place where you can have meaningful relationships with students. That was the genesis moment for the Center for Student Coaching and Success oh. that Floyd committed that seven figure gift to. Wow. Where I worked towards one on one, towards gainful employment and their chosen career path prior to walking across the stage at graduation. My friend who is who runs the Jim Moran Institute down in Florida State, Doug Tatum. He's smoking a cigar. We're down at KK's Fish Camp in, in uh, Tallahassee after I spoke with uh, with his group down there. And he said, boy, you gone and done it now, hadn't you? <laughs> and I said, what? He's about 10 years old than me. Incredible dude. I walked to him one day at a conference, and I said, dude, I don't know you, but I want to be you. And we start this incredible relationship. He brings me down to speak, and he said, you've gone and done it now, haven't you? And I said, what? He said, oh, on the cover of that magazine. He said, I got it. Mr. Success Coach. And I said, isn't that pretty cool? He goes, oh, we're going to find out just how good you are. He said, because you better about to start getting shots. You go and you bite this off and call yourself a success coach in that environment. And you're going to find out just how good you are. Virgil, I never saw that coming. Huh. But he was 100% right. You try to make higher ed change. I used to think my lot in life was to change higher education. It's not. My lot in life is to help children understand how to use it to get what they want from mm, it. Beautiful. You know, you're kind of
0: transformative now. Like what are you, like how are you channeling all that you're doing into what you think would be the next five to eight year goal set for you? What do you what are you looking to do? And how are you planning to further what it is that you do, both in an academic and private sector role. Yeah. You're getting a chance to impact kids' lives on the university-educating academic level, and you're getting a chance to impact professionals' lives in the private sector simultaneously. It's a tremendous gift. What are you, how are you harnessing that joy and energy to what it is that you want in the next
1: five to eight years? It's a great question. I'm 51. And I really am sitting here at 23. And I'm asking myself, what is it that I really want? I used to think that I wanted to coach and teach on an ever-increasing stage. I got connected very much in the way that you talk about through the, the book that you referenced where a person comes in front of you and, and what is it that you're supposed to learn from them? How are you supposed to have a relationship with them? How are you supposed to help them? How are they supposed to help you? And I got connected to a guy that is the director of, of culture. I mean, what a cool title! I'm the director of culture for this company. And he said, man, I'd like for you to come out. We do devotionals. And one of, uh, one of their core values is to reflect God in everything that they do. There's a company here in Middle Tennessee. And he said, I'd like you to come out and, just, and do a, part, a three-part devotional for us. And I said, okay. And I go out and I do the first one, I do the second one. Always beat yourself up when you get done, right? Mm-hmm. Could have done this, could have done this, should have done this, should have put this before this, should have said this. On the third one, this woman comes up to me and she said, I've been looking forward to each week of you coming back here. And I want you to know I'm going through a divorce. It's the most difficult time in my life. I never thought I'd experience it. Never thought that, that it would happen to me. It has. Starts to break down, starts to cry. And... And the words that you said are going to help me, I know, get through this and get to the other side of it. And in that moment, what I realized by speaking at, at Groove, and it's Groove Life, is the company, Kevin Beasley. Mm-hmm. Kevin's incredible. You need to have him on the show. I love to have that's, that's awesome. What I realized in that moment was I, I no longer care about the ever-increasing stage What I care about is every conversation that I have has the opportunity to create meaningful impact. Mm -hmm. So what I want to spend the next 10 years doing is to have more conversations like that, meaningful conversations that create greater impact, not for me, for them. I made the shift in 2023 where my speaking is zero about me. And it's 100% about the audience. Yeah. And here's what's so crazy. I start out every speaking presentation. A presentation, three hour, half day, full day, whatever. I start by just asking questions. And it's taken me 20 years to get here. But do you know that every one of them, when I get done, and it's on my LinkedIn profile, says that I was the most prepared speaker. When in reality... All I did was ask the questions and make it all about them mm-hmm. in their current role, in the moment, at that time. Yep, that's beautiful. What is, why does leadership matter? Question number one. What a simple question. Why does leadership matter? Question number two. Why does leadership matter in the context of your role? In the moment Today
0: Wow Nobody thinks like that Hardly anybody thinks like that anymore
1: And here here, Here's Here's my answer And I learned this along the way Leadership matters Because what we ask people to do Is freaking hard Mm -hmm. Yeah And they say all this other complex stuff But the reality is The only reason it matters Is because the shit we ask them to do that stuff's hard Yep That's exactly right Go bring a million dollars To a college campus Go tell them You're going to change it Go tell them That you're going to create Something that doesn't Live there Go be vulnerable What does Brene Brown say She says The most beautiful thing About vulnerability Is that it's the birthplace Of joy Creativity Innovation Yeah You're, You're never taught that That's right But yet It's vulnerable for you to have this podcast. I sit here, and when I'm playing these words with you, I'm thinking to myself, how is somebody else going to perceive it? What are they going to think about me? How is this going to impact my life in a negative way? It's vulnerable to go, hey, I'm Virgil, and I've been through some really difficult things, and I'm going to put this out to the world, and just whatever happens, happens. But damn it, that's what I've done my whole life. Because what she says that's so beautiful is that the people who love with their whole heart Understand that what makes them vulnerable is what makes them beautiful.
0: Yep. That's, that kind of statement kind of reminds me of what Robin Williams said in Good Will Hunting. Hmm. You know, similar. similar. It's like those, it's the little idiosyncrasies of greatness, the things that shine, that are truly what you love about somebody else. <laughs> Not how, how they look or how much money they have or what they can do for you. It's the little idiosyncrasies that make them them
1: their fingerprint yeah man and that's 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 the opportunity we have in higher ed dude yeah and if you can find that connect there, there's a kid coming back listen to his title he, he's the he's the vp of revenue generation at notre dame okay i went to my my group and i said w- w- there, there's four reasons people come to work come to higher education come to whatever there's four reasons opportunities to learn grow in responsibility contribute to others and be recognized the piece that we miss that's such a critical piece to all this is the be recognized if we're reinventing ourselves i'm spending money on the be recognized piece i'm gonna bring them back i'm gonna tell them how much we love them i'm gonna tell the tell the world how great they are and we're gonna celebrate their success so i call this kid patrick nolan vp revenue generation notre dame athletics i'm gonna get his title close it's something along those lines and um patrick when he tells this story he said when i met dr juvenville he said i had a a bad haircut not me him i had a bad haircut and a worse attitude (laughs) and i'll never forget this is probably 2003 2004 i called him outside and i said patrick You show up here late. You're not engaged. You're not passionate about what I'm passionate about, so I'm going to free you up to go do something else. You go figure out what your passion is. That kid comes back that next week, and I love these kind of kids. You find these kind of kids that got a little bit of hunger, that want it. Mm -hmm. They just have never tasted it before. That kid in 10 years evolved to where today he's a VP of revenue generation. At Notre Dame. And what did I do for him? Put a path and a plan as a coach and affirmed and validated the worth, to potential. Because once he came back to me, I said, dude, you're hungry. That's such a key to all this. You see what the future looks like. Before you can get to version two, you got to get to version one. Let's go get version one. Once I put him on the path to version one, he did it. Yeah. That's the beauty of higher ed. Yeah. So
0: true. Oftentimes, it's not the person who's the best or the smartest, it's the hungriest.
1: Absolutely. It always the is. The person's the hungriest is the and one you're going to watch this for. kid's a hustler. I mean, he's, you talk about, emo- about self awareness. Dude, I was a survivor. I was a middle kid, man. Middle child. My older brother did it first. My younger brother did it better. I was in the middle. I brought in that money at MTSU. Still calling my parents. I got my PhD at 29, full professor at 38. Am I good enough, mom? Am I good enough? That's what Bernay Brown says, man. We always sit here and ask ourselves, am I good enough? And she, what does she say? You are enough.
0: Mm-hmm. Final question before we shift gears to the things that you do to enjoy yourself. This is uh, interesting. I've never asked this question, so I'm kind of fascinated. What it takes to get to the top hmm. is not what it takes to stay at the top. Yeah. When you are coaching somebody, that gets to the top of the mountain and they no longer have anybody to beat anybody to conquer. How do you get them to shift their hunger from conquering others to conquering themselves? Yeah. Yeah, man. I mean, yeah, like to me, like I'll use golf as an example. Mm-hmm. Rory McElroy is as talented as any golfer we've ever seen. Yeah, But once he gets to the top, he doesn't have anybody to chase, and his energy drops, and he gets past, And then he gathers himself and then gets to number one again. He's probably done it four times. Tiger Woods, on the other hand, destroyed everything in his path. Yeah, And then once he got to the top, he cranked it up again and was more dominant than he was then. And then he did it again. And then, you know, life got in the way. But at the end of the day, the difference between Tiger Woods and Tom Brady and Michael Jordan and the handful of others in those prospective sports that are equally or more gifted and talented that can't stay at the top, what do you find is the, the ingredient of being able to stay at the top when there's nobody
1: else to chase? In all of our lives, there's a book. It's called The Second Mountain. In all of our lives, we have a valley of discontentment. Maybe a divorce, maybe the death of a child, maybe being knocked down in work. At some point, we all have a valley of discontentment. And while they may be sitting there at the top, one of the things that I've noticed about top performers, all of the ones you just described, we're all insecure they all are it's never enough yeah and at some point you have to get people to understand how to shift man's greatest desire is to shift from signif- success to significance and significance is so different than success my greatest significance my significance on this planet are my kids yeah when mary burke at my daughter I'm I'm colby burke She's named after me. I call her M.B., just turned 18, incredible. Has my personality, always wants to be happy, loving on people. Um, her coping mechanism is to laugh. At six, she goes out there, and I'm like, Man, M.B., there's, there's like 600 people out here watching you dance. And she said, don't worry, Dad. I was born to do this. Mm-hmm. And somewhere along the way, we lose that. This world will beat you down.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: No, one, no one tells you in the American dream that it's going to drag you out behind a woodshed. It's going to pound you. More than once. More than once. And there's a great TED Talk out there. And, and, and whoever listens to this needs to watch it. I, I called this guy afterwards. He's a Mississippi guy. He went to Belhaven. And uh, it's called the American Dream Value Meal. Value menu The American Dream Value menu And he says There's six things That make up the dream But you only get To pick three Ooh And what he talks about Is family Fun Friends Fitness Finance And the dream And he tells this Beautiful story About At one point in his life When he was from Star Mississippi He wanted to be The most famous person To ever come from Star Mississippi You know who's from Star Mississippi No um, she's married to uh, Tim McGraw. Faith Hill. No kidding. <laughs> so he, shows this, he shows this picture of him at 30 with his long hair and <laughs> grossly overweight. and You know, all the challenges that we have in life. But what he says is that at some point in your life, you've got to pick three. And I think it's a fascinating way to look at what he's talking about. He said that we had people come to our high school and tell us things like, tell us lies, like you can be anything you want to be. (laughs) 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 But to his point, one of the things that's the greatest takeaway from that is if you're going to go chase all this success, at some point you need to build a swimming pool in the back of your yard and you have a place where you can forget. Mm -hmm. Self-forgetting. And I thought to myself that that's a powerful idea. I've never been able to understand work-life balance. I totally understand work-life integration. Mm-hmm. I think what has to happen when you work with people that are at the top, you have to first get them to acknowledge that they've spent a lifetime pleasing other people at the benefit of their own happiness. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone that I know that I've worked with that's at the top has sacrificed their own happiness for other people's. Mm -hmm. They have some sense of obligation that they owe it to them. I sat with the CEO when his company was about to fall, and he said, How am I going to go out there in tears? How am I going to go out there and tell these people who I've given them a job that's paid their bills their whole life that they don't have a job here anymore? 35 years old staring at him. He said, you know what? I can't do it. So we're going to have to figure this out. And if we can all figure this out, we can prosper together. So I think it's acknowledging that. Yeah. Then the second, I think is acknowledging the fact that at some point man's greatest desire is to move from success to significance (laughs) and getting them to see that Mm -hmm. they've spent their whole life serving God other people and when finally they can let go and take a breath and go it's okay to serve myself what does that mean yeah so true such an important part yeah no kidding now that's probably not the answer that you expected me to give no and i do understand the question it's one thing to get to the top it's another thing to stay at the top my friend joe calloway have you had calloway on this Mm -mm. podcast i wrote i wrote a book and then i read calloway's books and i said to myself man i wish i wish i'd read these books before calloway's books because calloway's titles of his books are so good you don't need to read the books (laughs) the title of his book is my favorite book is be the best at what matters most the only strategy you'll ever need i called calloway barely knew him and i said joe you know what's amazing about your books and he said no i said the title if you read it you don't even need to read the book he goes i know isn't that cool (laughs) chapter two of the book of be the best at what matters most the only strategy you'll ever need is it's not that complicated (laughs) the chapter's two pages i said dude you're a
0: genius (laughs) that's so true The second half of the show is about the things you do to recharge your batteries. We've definitely learned one thing. Although you do exert energy and the batteries run low every day, you're constantly recharging your batteries because you're giving and fulfilling into others. But ultimately, you have to, we talked about it just now, you also have to take care of yourself.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. Uh, yeah, it's true. So, what is it that you have done
0: in your lifetime? That helps you recharge. So historically speaking, they're the things that bring large groups of people together, like-mindedness, which is why 100,000 people show up to a college football game, mm. 95,000 people show up to see Garth Brooks, people go to see Broadway show after Broadway show after Broadway show, see Cats 12 times. <laughs> what is it that is, fuels you? So when you were growing up, I know you are an
1: athlete. Yep. Who were your favorite athletes and teams? Yeah, I mean, those, those, uh, the 85 Bears, the 86 Giants, uh, those, those Boston Celtics team. I can remember uh, we had a, we had a television um, at a little house in Mobile and, and the screen turned green. And, and I said to my dad, are you going to get a new TV? And he said, why? I, you can still see the picture, can't you? <laughs> but, I, but I watched every one of those games. And I can remember some of the greatest childhood memories of my life is watching those '85 Bears and '86 Giants, and those Celtics teams and the battles that they would have mm-hmm. against the Pistons and and um, the Lakers and the Bulls and the Sixers. That's about all the Celtics ever did was and the Sixers deal
0: with the Sixers and the and the Bulls and the Pistons.
1: And every one of those every one of those athletes. Played a role. Every one of them understood how to work together, and the camaraderie, and the relationships, and the collective force that they made had such an impact on me. I, I don't. I don't see that today, Mm-mm. and it, and it makes me sad. Yeah. And um, there's a there's a lot of things to be joyful about in life and if i guess if the worst that i have to to think about is the fact that that we don't have uh, the kind of uh, collective relationship the collective force that makes up sports teams today then so be it but a lot of my self forgetting was was in watching those those sports teams and falling in love with that i love music Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and it's not it's it's not the Bridgestone. um do you know who Jack o. Pierce is? Oh,
0: yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I saw Mississippi State a bunch of times.
1: I figured that you did. Um, so I was introduced to them in college. And, uh, dude, I get so wrapped up into to my stuff that, that by the time I get home after getting up at 4.30 in the morning that, that I'm in bed at 7. Mm-hmm. And I'm asleep by 8. But I see this little thing come up on, ironically, Facebook. And it's 3rd and Lindsley. And um, I'm like, I have said for the last 30 years that I want to see Jack O'Pierce in concert. And I'm going. And I went up there, and for two hours, those dudes delivered the mail. And every one of their songs, I sang along with them. There was probably 40 people in the, the venue and I forgot every last problem that I had. Yep. And and I think music is such an emotional touch point. Um a quick side note, when I was when I was growing up, the Wayne Williams School for Better Living and Better People, mm-hmm. you could I spent most of my time grounded. I was a bad kid. <laughs> i would egg I would egg houses in broad daylight that's how dumb I was on a dare from somebody else to do it and uh, that somebody else was my brother and um <laughs> and and so you could either read books or listen to music and so my dad had an old chest that had probably six hundred albums and i would i was fascinated with them I'd lay them out neil young um sergeant peppers um New Riders of the Purple Sage, Led Zeppelin II. i just lay them all out. I'd listen to them over and over and over. And I got to this one album, and it was Don McLean, American Pie, and that thumb that's sticking out at you. And I'll never forget, I listened to that song over and over and over again until I finally memorized it. And he says, I met a girl who sang the blues, and I asked her for some happy news, and she just smiled and went away. I went down to the sacred store where I heard the music years before, but a man there said the music wouldn't play. And in the streets, the children screamed, the lovers cried, and the poets dreamed, but not a word was spoken because the church bells all were broken. And the three men I admire most, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, they caught the last train, and I say to the Mississippi Gulf Coast, the day the music died. And I'll never forget that. And when I look back on my life, and you ask me what really recharges my batteries is looking at somebody and knowing at some point in all of our life the music's going to die out Mm -hmm. and being that person that can be there to help them find that music and start again is truly how I recharge my batteries. Yeah, that's beautiful.
0: Yeah, music is such a huge part of my life. I mean, like you hear songs and they take you back into a time like boom. Yes. But I'm always fascinated. I've had the opportunity to interview some really big time artists. Vince Gill will be this person I'll talk about this one. So I asked Vince, I said, "Man, what's it like?" Like to me the every great athlete would love to be the lead singer of a huge band and every lead singer of a huge band would love to be an athlete. <laughs> it's kind of funny. <laughs> But I'm sitting here like, Vince, I can't imagine, because I had just gone to see Pearl Jam at Wrigley Field, mm. right? So there's 88,000 people there to see Pearl Jam. Yeah. And they sing Better Man, and Eddie Vedder only has to strum the guitar, and 88,000 people go crazy. Go, and they, they sing the song back to you. Yes. Because what you've created like? an art yeah. that has impacted so many people's lives. They're now paying... Now I've only bought the album. Now they're going to pay for you to sing it to them live. They're there. They're, some people are in the upper deck. They can You look about a half an inch tall. And as soon as that guitar goes, they feel like they're standing right beside you. Yeah. So what is that feeling? Because the version never gets old. Oh, I don't doubt it. I can, I can imagine the, the overwhelming feeling that the pain that Better Man was written around Yeah. for Eddie Vedder becomes a cathartic transformation in his life to the point where something that was so terrible that he had to endure, he can write lyrics to a song and sing it and 88,000 people resonate because it pulled them through hell. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's like, that is amazing. And I live for that moment because I'm I'm a, my my favorite band is Tool by a mile and Pearl Jam right behind that but it's still significant down yeah the experience of live music and the power of the message that the band is trying to convey i'm totally captivated by i,
1: I think it i think it personifies everything that we've talked about today yeah connection feeling personal brand relationship yeah all those struggle all those things are wrapped up in that one moment. Yeah. Um, I. Uh, they've perfected the craft. They've honed it to the point that you can't do it any better. I had the good fortune of going and hearing Darius Rucker. The cracked review got me through a real difficult time in my life. Mm-hmm. Not difficult in the sense that that I'm wondering how I'm going to make it through the day, but difficult in the sense that I know I've got something inside of me, and I don't know how to get it out. And if you listen to every one of those songs, it's almost like it's a book, and every song is a chapter. And it takes you through someone's entire life. Yeah. And when I sit there, and this is when I had this moment when I just said what I said to you. When I sat there in Nashville in some warehouse where somebody said, hey, there's a business model here where we can bring fans in in an intimate setting and have them speak to us, have them... Connect with a musician who tells stories about why the songs are meaningful to them. When you get that close to it and you see what he does, the only conclusion that you come to is that they hone their craft in such a way that they cannot do it any better. Yeah. And to me, if you're sitting at any stage of your life, And you're saying, what am I missing? That's part of it. Yeah. I walked out of a speaking engagement in 2023. First time ever in talking in 20 years. And I said to myself, I can't do it any better. It's never happened to me in 20 years. Hmm. And it was because of that moment of watching Darius. And it was that feeling that I had with Darius in this 60 other people. And I had that same feeling with that group of 60 people when I was doing it. And I put it all on the line, and I made it all about them. It is nothing about me. And I walked out, and I said to myself, I've honed my craft.
0: And to me, I love that you're, you're vulnerable to say that. Because some people, because I've said that about myself, and I get criticized for being arrogant and cocky and co- overconfident. It's not. It's not. I'm just like, man, no, I have worked my entire life wow. for this moment. And man, I delivered it when I when I needed to deliver it the most. Yes. Man, that's a great feeling.
1: Be the best at what matters
0: most. Yeah. Wow, that's so true. I know you have, I'm really fascinated to hear this story on wine. I'm a huge wine lover. <laughs> and I think that's interesting to me is like, there aren't many things that always elevate a room. You know, ice cream always elevates a room. Uh, f- French fries generally Ooh. elevate a room. Chocolate chip cookies elevate a room. And wine yeah. elevates a room. Yeah. And there's something about, the, you know, obviously, and I'm not sitting here saying that alcohol is great. What I'm saying is that wine is an art. Yeah. And generally speaking, it takes down human insecurities and barriers (laughs) and allows people to have an excuse to be themselves Ooh, and then they realize it's okay it's okay to be me what has wine meant to you and what is
1: your favorite (laughs) wine well i mean you know i am from mobile it's the birthplace of mardi gras uh, you decide from a very early age if you're going to uh, be in the parade or stand by and watch on the sidewalk. <laughs> yep. uh, for the lack of a better better uh, metaphor, I, I decided to get on into the, uh, into the uh, parade early in life. And, uh, and also, too, I will tell you that there's an old saying that says drinking makes families. So uh, you asked me specifically about <laughs> my relationship with wine. Um, you know... <laughs> I saw this, and I thought to myself, man, I could take this so many different ways. I mean, I went back to Hattiesburg, and I, I'll tell you how broke I was, all right? Um, I came back from the Kappa Sig house. I came back from New Orleans. I was living in Jimmy Buffett's room with the Kappa Sig house, and these two guys had a party in my room. And I took, and they destroyed it. And I took everything that, that they owned out of their room, and I took it down to Doc's Pawn Shop, and I hawked it all. And I put a note on their door that said, um, I took all your stuff, and I hawked it to Doc's to pay for cleaning up my room. And I put everything that I owned to the back of an Isuzu trooper or two. And I got a Sunday newspaper, and I looked up apartment manager's job. And I called uh, two different apartment managers, and they asked me if I had... Um, if I had experience in plumbing and electric, and I said, no, I've got a Millsaps college degree, but the third one said, do you have experience in plumbing and electric? And I said, yes. And I got this apartment manager's job. And why am I telling you this story? I, 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 I had a reason why. And, how, <laughs> and my, my brother, Zach, moves in. All right. And so Zach is a lobbyist in D.C., Okay. And I was so broke that I moved into, uh, you see how I came back. It was pretty good. Yeah, good to save. Come back. I moved into this apartment manager's job with nothing in, except that I owned the back of a Suzuki Trooper too. And I had a tab at a local bar with a guy named Mike. And um, he would let me pay my tab every month when I got my student um, loan money. And all I drank was Bud Light and Miller Lite, okay? So that was going to be my answer. And that was a pretty boring answer that, hey, man, I'm just a Bud Light or Miller Lite guy. I go back 30 years later, and this guy at this same bar, he says, hey, I order a Bud Light. He goes, in case you didn't know it, this is not a Bud Light bar anymore. This is a craft beer, craft beer <laughs> bar. And I thought to myself, oh, how, how far we have fallen. So that was going to be my story. And that is part of my story. But my brother, Zach, um, is this interesting cat that's a lobbyist in D.C. And part of his education was going out to France and um, going through some classes in France. And so he knows just enough French to be dangerous. And so I asked him about this because he got me this bottle of wine. And I'm going to butcher it. And thank God he gave me this bottle of wine because my answer to you would have been Miami, and that's a really bad answer. Okay, not not to say that I had a, a two hour discussion with a heart doctor that said that if that Miami, if I drank that, that my heart would, would go forever. This is this conversation that I had. and I was I was I was I was drinking the Kool Aid and the wine. Okay, but Jack, Zach tells this beautiful story, and Zach is the guy that scored the basket. Uh, Back in the day With the intramural league Mm -hmm. But it's called And I'm going to butcher this And I was hoping you would say it And save me But it's called Domaine Alain Gras Alright And it's in Burgundy, France Mm -hmm. And I love wine Um, (laughs) It takes me to places that I usually don't go (laughs) So i got to be careful In my 50s About it But I never tasted wine like this before. And I can't even I can't even characterize for you. I can't even describe it. But I just sent him a text and I said, Hey man, I got this interview with this guy. One of these questions is about he's gonna ask me about wine. I mean, you know me, I'm a Bud Light, Bud Light, middle light guy. I mean I do a little Mayomi from time to time. I mean as I've gotten older, you know you're the more cultured one of the family share with me that what was that bottle of wine so he tells this incredible story where he goes to this he emails this guy that owns this winery it's a multi-generational winery in burgundy france saint auburn and saint romaine wines and he sends it and his wife says there's no way they're going to respond well he responded and they go over there And he marveled at the fact that down in Fairhope, where my brother lives, there's this place called Red and White. That's where he found these wines. And the guy said that, you know, I cannot believe that you found this wine, that 90% of his stock goes to restaurants and not retail. And he told him, well, I found it in Fairhope, Alabama. He then took him down to the cellar's beautiful brick cave under the house and he let him he said this is what zach sent me he let us know that white wines are under his bedroom because he likes to sleep close to them because they're his favorite <laughs> we hung out in his cellar checked out his wine and his cigar collection he then walked us around in different fields explaining how the soil in each field changes the wine could not have been a nicer guy best wine experience i've ever had and took the, always, he said, Zach said this, always take the chance and email the big guy. Maybe he will respond. Yeah, I think that speaks to what you're talking about, is what a beautiful story that he can, my brother can go and make that connection, much like Darius, much like Tool, much like Pearl Jim. This guy has perfected and honed his craft. He creates this bottle of wine, and Zach, you know, he he sold me on it, man. He played it up, and I'm like, man, look, dude, wine is wine. It can't be that good. And I tasted it, and I thought to myself, well, this is what wine's supposed to taste like. Uh-huh. And it's one of those moments that, to your point, that I always keep... Uh, front and center and I still ask Zach for a bottle of that wine and he, he says Colby I can't even get a bottle of that wine <laughs> and if I get one you're not getting it
0: that.
1: <laughs> so that's my wine story uh, that's
0: awesome that's awesome um, favorite movie
1: Breaking Away I've oh, never heard of that um, I could say Star Wars I could say Stripes no you know what dude I, I'm going to have to say Stripes I mean, if I'm just if I'm if I'm sitting, my my son Jack. Now see, I got Zach and Jack, so I'm gonna start mm-hmm. my little brother Zach, my son Jack. <clears throat> I've asked him so many times to sit down. Breaking Away is this incredible show about a group of um, um, misfits that um, ride bicycles and don't fit anywhere in the world and they fall in love with the culture, the Italian culture and the riding of bikes and they start to talk like that. It's a 1980s film. My dad, mm-hmm. my dad was incredible at teaching us these things. My Bodyguard, Breaking Away, all these incredible movies. Um, but Stripes, I, I fell in love with the way that Bill Murray delivers lines. And how he can hold it in such a way, and deliver it in such a way, and those were the early signals for me that I loved language, and and I love delivery. And so, if I'm saying favorite, it's going to be Stripes, um, Blues Brothers. Hmm. Um,
0: um. Interesting that the uh, you're you have a a favorite list that comes out of the same. Era, yeah. with the same people, yeah, that's fascinating because they made an impact on you.
1: Oh, I mean, if, if I could, if I could, could you imagine what it would be like to sing "Everybody Needs Somebody to Love," Jake and Elwood Blues, <laughs> in front of those thousands of people in the in the Highway Patrol waiting for you? <laughs> I have dreamed this over and over <laughs> in my head, I, and it's not so much. It's not so much the song as it is the band and the lead-up and them coming, Jake and, El, Jake and his brother coming out, Elwood, and them doing it together. And then what does he say? He says, we're so glad that you could be here with us tonight. He said, it says, towards the end, he says, even the highway patrol has joined us. Uh-huh. He said, but the one thing that we realize is that you, me, everybody, Needs someone to love, and then Belushi goes right into it. Everybody needs somebody. Well, if you watch Belushi do that, and then you watch Bill Murray when he finally decides to quote unquote fall in line, and they're they're going into March, and he sings, he starts to sing. What what is the song that he sings? Um, there she was, just walking down the street. <laughs> Those two moments, I can hear it. Wow. And they're the same moments. And here's here's one thing that that I will leave you with that I think is so cool. All human beings are born with the ability to pattern match. What happens is that most human beings are not made aware that they have that ability. What entrepreneurs do is take that ability and stack it Mm -hmm. what you've been able to do is know what your patterns are and then you stack them accordingly to create value Hmm. for other people interesting jason pfeiffer taught me that Hmm. we had him on the podcast that's awesome and i need to get you on the podcast but but i i didn't know you were going to ask me that and i didn't know i was going to answer that But but that's it. Is that's why those movies, it's not the storyline, it's it's what they did to build relationships. (laughs) He says, We're so glad you're with us tonight. Yeah. And you, me, everybody needs someone to To
0: love. love. That's so fascinating. I've never thought of it the way like just how you described it helped me describe how I would answer this question if I was somebody asked me. Yeah. It's like to me. I've always answered this question. I think the greatest movie that I've seen that impacted me the most was Gladiator. Mm. The funniest movie I've ever watched is Wedding Crashers. Oh, yeah. And the movie <laughs> that intellectually stimulated me the most was Goodwill Hunting. Mm. But the movie that has all three of those pieces that is now, I have to answer, as the greatest movie I've ever seen is Forrest Gump. Yeah. Forrest Gump has the theater and the drama the comedy, the delivery that Tom Hanks has so many is so beautiful and the intellect the intelligence and that movie is often oftentimes wrapped in the simpleness of Forrest Gump but there's so many wonderful life lessons that are taught in that movie Forrest Gump is the accumulation of the greatness of my three favorite movies and I just thought I never really thought of it without you kind of putting your Stripes and Blues Brothers
1: piece to it. I'm like wow
0: it's fascinating,
1: and let me let me bring it all together to, to full circle for me and you. And where's the author Winston Groom from? Mobile,
0: Mobile Alabama. Alabama. How about that?
1: Specifically, Fairhope.
0: How about that? That is, wow. That's what we call integration. Final question. One of my, and this is a long-standing final question for me because I find it so compelling. Jason Silva is a, a you know, he was he was the host of Mind Games. On TV, he's kind of an intellectual guy. And he posed this question on social media one day, and I think that it's brilliant. It really shook me up a little bit. He says Everybody experiences three deaths they that you find out you're going to die, the day that you die, and your final death is the last time anybody ever mentions your name. Then he turns the screen to himself and says, What are you doing to extend that third life? That made me pause for a second because that's like meaning and purpose, like man, what am I doing? What am I doing to make it so that when I'm long gone, somebody along the line is gonna say, I remember Virgil said that, or so when you when you think about those things, the three deaths, yeah, what does that mean to you
1: my my mind my mind goes to the John Maxwell or or the Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain quote, the two most important days of your life, the day that you're born and the day you find out why. Yeah. And dude, I don't know. I don't know. I've always asked this question. Was Michael Jordan born to end up where he did? Or were there things that he did along the way to end up where we did? My little daughter, MB, said, Daddy, I was born to do this. I always ask myself, did I choose this or did this choose me? Mm. And I don't know the answer. Mm -hmm. I keep leaning towards this chose me. How else do you explain it?
0: The gravitational pull of...
1: of Call it serendipity, call it destiny, call it... Um, how in the world Did in 2023 I get connected to Amanda Who then says You need to know Virgil Who I'm like Shut up Virgil Herring I know who he is He's said He's the guy that does I, I, know, I know your work But I had forgotten That you and I Had connected Yep But yet Here we are You've had You've had your 25 year, 20 year run since I've seen you. Mm-hmm. It's got to be a 15 year run. Lord knows I've had mine. And in the two hour conversation that we had up to this, there's a whole lot of success and failure yep. that goes along with it. So, my answer to that question is I honestly believe that if I look back on my life, everything that I have done is to try to leave a legacy. From the articles that I write to the podcasts that I have to <clears throat> the relationships that I've built to, to my children and the relationships that I've had with them, I've never been motivated by money. I've always been motivated about the relationship yeah. and what happens in that. And, man, sometimes I screw that up. Yeah, there, Some, it, sometimes I make a mess of it. This one guy said to me years ago, have you met my friend Dr. Jubenville? He'll come into the room and suck the air out of it. I said to him, why did you do that to me in front of those people? He said, because you needed somebody to. Wow. <laughs> so I'm very careful with who I can suck the air out of the room with mm-hmm. and who I can't. Yeah, interesting. But I think the greatest opportunity we have today in the world, in education, is to help people find their voice, the intersection of talent, passion, conscience, need in the world. The second greatest thing is teach them how to protect, develop, and maintain their confidence. Confidence is about asking for help, building trusting relationships, being open to feedback, trying new things. That comes from a book called Remind, Kristen Taylor. I've never heard it that way. But once you understand that, then it fundamentally changes the way you look at that. Hmm. Fascinating. And I've always done that because here's what I know. If you do those two things, if you help people find their voice, the intersection of talent, passion, consciousness in the world, i.e. your career, my career, the relationships that we have, the value that we bring to the world, Mm -hmm. and you help them develop, protect, and maintain their confidence, ask for help, build trusting relationships, be open to feedback, try new things, there ain't nothing that they can't accomplish. There ain't nothing that they can't do where they live in a knowledge economy that says no one understands your value and put yourself in a position to use it. That's what everybody wants. Uh-huh. So true.
0: Well, if my listeners are out there and are interested in uh, seeking your counsel for help in their business or their personal uh rise to greatness. How can they reach out to you?
1: And 615-498-6802. Love it. I mean com is where all my media and all my all my articles are stored, but but seriously, I, I I give my I give my cell phone to anybody that wants it, man. 615-498-6802 some of the greatest moments in my life are the, some of the phone call. I got this crazy phone call where this guy said, "Man, if I called you uh, so I got this. He said to me, This guy told me in Lowe's that I should reach out to you. And I'm thinking to myself, Who in the hell knows me? <laughs> It's walking around in Lowe's. <laughs> it ended up being one of the best conversations and one that, of the best man. relationships of my life. I said, Look, I don't know you. I thought it was one of my fraternity brothers from Millsap screwing with me. So I keep, because it's a real country guy. I'm like, Oh, well, yeah. Well, what did he tell you, Lowe's? He just said, Man, you could make things real simple. People could understand it. They, you knew what you were talking about. You could help me. I said, All right. This guy's a, a military veteran. Fine. I'll meet you. I said, where are you? He said, I'm over in Hobby Lobby. I said, of course you are. I said, I'll meet you at the Red Lobster. I will drink one glass of wine, and I will listen to what you have to say. Ten years later, in his wedding, best friends. How about that? Incredible entrepreneur.
0: How about that? Well, Kobe, I can't. First of all, it's so great to reconnect after a very long time in no a Nashville Predators game. To, uh, <laughs> to Marty Mulford, to, if you're listening, that's your fault. <laughs> that's right. But at the end of the day, I can't thank you enough for sharing your story, and I look forward to uh, not going 20 years without connecting every every. I,
1: I, once I can't in believe more. it's been that long. And uh, you, you know, t- Tony Robbins said it best. He said, "If you if you're going to ba- blame your parents for all your problems, if you're going to talk about the bad, you better talk about the good." Yep and man I think that's the same for our relationships I think that's the same for our kids I think that's the same for our careers and I'm fortunate man I, to have the opportunity to reconnect with you and, um, and spend time with you and share a little bit of my story is fun for me and uh, I appreciate the opportunity to be with you. My pleasure buddy well this is fun <laughs>
0: Are you looking for a smarter real estate experience? Compass pairs the industry's top real estate agents with innovative technology to deliver a seamless experience for every client, from first-time buyers to seasoned sellers. Lisa Gaston has been a Nashville resident for many years. With her deep local knowledge and her commitment to exceptional client services, she's helping clients all across Nashville find their place. To learn more about Lisa, follow her on Instagram at Lisa LisaGastonHolmes. The Gaston Collective is a team of real estate licensees affiliated with Compass RE, a licensed real estate broker, and abides by the equal housing opportunity laws.
1: On the Verge is produced by Chase Acres. If you've enjoyed the show, leave a five-star rating and write a review. Click subscribe to make sure that you don't miss a
0: single episode.